Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Marjorie Dannenfelser, who is not only the president of the Susan B. Anthony List, a political pro-life organization dedicated to electing pro-life leaders in the United States, but also a mother of five and author of the recently released book, Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marjorie. I've been so looking forward to this. I just love your show. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for writing this incredible book, Life is Winning. I was both amazed and impressed by how much political dirty laundry you aired in the pages of the book. (laughs) I honestly don't know how you continue to find the strength to do your job in the face of so many setbacks and failed promises. But I also think today, more than ever, voters are so sick of politicians from both party lines shying away from tough issues like abortion and rolling over belly up on the issues they previously held sacred in order to get elected. So how do you do it? (laughs) Well, I think the era in which we find ourselves is not that different than other eras that were at the center of human rights battles in American history. And that every one of these battles that was worthwhile, whether it was abolition or civil rights, fighting against the uh, practice of using children for 12-hour days in factories, you know, every, every one of these battles that was worthwhile had setbacks for a long time. And that the people who were fighting them felt those setbacks, but were always groaning forward, always stretching, always moving towards the goal and could see the evidence of progress all around, even if the immediate goal that we'd set out to accomplish had not been accomplished. And I see that in studying the suffrage movement, been very deeply involved in studying that and living a little bit of that um, (laughs) throughout the Susan B. Anthony's lifetime, but also recently as we celebrated suffrage 100th anniversary. Right. And I noticed that was hardly even a blip on the radar when The president pardoned Susan B. Anthony after so many years for her illegal vote as a woman so many years ago. And you would think that would be a monumental thing, especially in this commemorative year for women's votes. But it was barely a blip on the radar. Well, you know, it didn't fit the narrative against the president. And uh, it was a genius, creative and really meaningful move. But I actually think that that example is one to answer what your first question was. So Susan B. Anthony had this strategy that was related to the Supreme Court and the 14th Amendment. And she thought about not denying rights without due process. And that law was applying to former slaves and the right for black men to vote, but not to women. So she thought appealing to that same amendment would work and that the act of voting illegally would spur the case that would bring this to the Supreme Court. Well, it turned out to not be true. It didn't work. She ended up using a different strategy. But we can see now the seed that was planted. Even though the immediate goal wasn't one, we still talk about how she, in the face of, of injustice, went ahead and fitted herself within the truth, doing what she knew that she needed to do. And, and we still learn from that particular example. So these paths forward are zigzag paths and life is winning 
I'm sure of that for many reasons discussed in the book, but I think the evidence is all around us now. I mean, we're very close to a Supreme Court that is a solid pro-life majority, mm. and uh, and we see pro-life laws potentially around the corner that will save millions of lives. Right. And in the book, you explain the warped tour of the past several decades on Capitol Hill and how the Democratic Party has quickly become a contest to see which candidate can prove to be the most radically pro-abortion. You state more than anyone, Joe Biden exemplified his party's race to the left when he reversed his position on the Hyde Amendment after decades of opposition to taxpayer funding of abortion, the Democratic Party's capitulation to the radical abortion lobby was complete. The SBA list is a bipartisan organization, but has found it increasingly difficult to find Democratic candidates to endorse. Are there any pro-life Democrats left in politics? There are, but they're not on the federal level. And that's basically, there's a glass ceiling when you get to the federal level. There is the governor of Louisiana who is pro-life, signed into law, the law that was challenged up to the Supreme Court on abortion admitting privileges case. So yes, you can find them. But if you're a Democrat right now, you have to have aspirations that are limited to where you live. (laughs) Um, Because if you seek to gain higher office at this point, which I think this is going to change, but at this point, you will not pass the filter and scrutiny of the Democratic bosses who approve whether you will ever get past your primary or not. So I think that's going to change. I think there's a return. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I see the indications of this now return of feminism to its roots, pro-life roots, and a return of the Democratic Party eventually to its pro-life roots as well. It seems like something has to change because I think that a lot of these pro-abortion politics had just assumed if they keep on powering through with this radical agenda, people would just kind of follow like sheep and get on board. But as you show in the book, many different polls, not only the Susan B. Anthony list, but the Gallup poll and various different polls continue to show that most Americans remain with some kind of pro-life values. So they're not really Mm -hmm. able to bully the public into getting on board completely with this radical abortion agenda. Yeah, that's right. And um, the only way that they were getting away with it before is that really nobody understood what was happening. And this is the reason why we started Susan B. Anthony List. No one was flexing the political muscle of the pro-life issue when they got into federal office. So it wasn't being made a national level conversation so that the truth of what Roe is, what the law is and what it isn't could, you know, make its way into the consciences of America. It was um, sad and tragic and helpful that we saw the governor of Virginia communicate what he would do with a born alive Mm -hmm. and a born alive abortion situation. Same for Cuomo. Same for when the president contrasted his views on that particular issue with Hillary Clinton at the concluding argument of Mm -hmm. the 2016 election. I talk to him pretty regularly, and I know that this is his intention, and he brings it up at every rally. And he just signed an executive order on a born alive issue as well. So keeping this high level conversation going means that people are realigning. They just are. People who call themselves pro-choice are saying, well, I'm pro-choice, but I'm not for that. Meaning the Biden Kamala hit ticket right. uh, position. And that born alive legislation is one that you as the Susan B. Anthony list and so many pro-lifers behind you have been waiting a very long time for, and you talk about the heartbreaking and heart-wrenching 
tragedy of it coming to the floor and then getting pulled 15 days beforehand and just how (laughs) years and years of agony to try to get it Mm. to the point where, you know, these politicians, it seems like a no brainer that no matter how you believe as far as choice or life, it seems a no brainer that if a child is born alive, it would be a humanitarian act to save this child, this human being. Mm. But even that, I mean, yes, those moments of disappointment. Yeah, the 20-week bill getting pulled off the floor the day before the March for Life where we had organized everything around communicating that and the leadership and then getting it back on track later. But each of these stories, there is some good that was pulled out of each thing. Mm. And almost always in this situation, there has to be a political lesson. The people who made the wrong decision suffered in some way. Mm. I don't mean physically or morally. I just mean they were called out (laughs) for being what they were, which was weak on this most important issue that they say is the death of a child. Um, They think that that is the case. But swimming in it and bathing in the horror all the time can kind of get old. This horror is getting old. We're getting used to this abuse. And that happens in every generation as well. Think of other generations that got used to horrific things and how people were treated and didn't really think about it too much. It's exactly the same dynamic. The only way you pull yourself out of it is that the people who say that they believe this, you hold them to it. The people who don't believe it at all and come up in your face, yeah, you counter them and you defeat them as well. But you have to do both. Right. I loved when I was reading it and you kind of said, you know, these people that flip-flopped, you were like, okay, now we're coming for you. And I just, I was championing you and this obviously is in the past, but just looking at these people and say, yeah, 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 I know what's going to happen, but come on, like, let's see how this unfolds. So the book was really (laughs) exciting. It always happened again. Yes, that's right. I really hope that this book gets onto the desk of some of those people that you really challenged for their radical flip-flops. And I really hope that they can see this through the eyes of the pro-life movement and how much they've disappointed their original champions, you know, and the people that were allies. You talk about people not answering your calls suddenly and going to their offices and all the lights being out or them not being there. I really hope those people see the cowardice that shows through on the pages of this book. And I really hope this gets into the hands of a lot of people before the election, because this is so (laughs) powerful. And as focus on race issues and the Black Lives Matter movement have drawn attention to racial disparities in this country, many have challenged pro-lifers to surrender their anti-abortion vote in order to focus on wider pro-life issues affecting minorities and immigrants, You mentioned New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who likened millions of Americans' deeply held pro-life convictions to racism. Yet, in New York City, which has one of the nation's highest abortion rates, more black babies are aborted than born alive, a fact that you call an unfathomable tragedy for this community that has suffered and overcome so many injustices. How do you respond to the call for pro-lifers to widen their focus in considering a pro-abortion candidate? Well, I think it's appropriate that you bring up the Black community in this and in the context of Black Lives Matter. And then there's also the other issue of the hierarchy of rights that we have as human beings. And whether taking a stance on the most fundamental requires that you take a stance on all the other ones as well. I think we're called to take a moral stand when it's clear to us on, on everything that we see. But 
failing to work on every single moral wrong doesn't mean working on the most fundamental one is a waste of time. In fact, working on the most fundamental right, the right to live, which is the font of every other right that comes after, is the first place to go. And you can have a lot of differences, fair and prudential differences of opinion on a lot of other matters. But if you don't live, those other rights questions are moot points. Mm -hmm. On the question of Black Lives Matter, I think the community in New York suffers more potentially than any other, just because there are so many deaths due to abortion. And there are more abortions, as you mentioned, than live births in the Black community. All those precious babies were each one sent for a purpose that only they can accomplish. And how many of them were the ones to bring their families to a different place, out of poverty, be the one to be leaned on in time of crisis or difficulty, the potential father that could mentor other fathers. I mean, everything missing there is just staggering. And the biggest Planned Parenthood affiliate in the world is in New York. And in that very affiliate, its employees walked out and said, this is a racist institution based on a racist founder in Margaret Sanger, and they are guilty of reproductive harm when it comes to the black community. Reproductive harm. I had not ever actually heard that term before, mm. but if there's any group that can claim that against Planned Parenthood, it is the black community. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, and it's interesting to see also how quickly this year Planned Parenthood has distanced themselves from Margaret Sanger and from their origins after celebrating that even earlier this year, they launched a whole new website that had promoted Margaret Sanger throughout and all of her historic moments. As of March, they pulled it down by the end of March this year, and suddenly Margaret Sanger is nowhere to be seen in any of their literature after centuries of yeah. clinging to it's that. It's amazing. I mean, I never would have, just so many things I would never have predicted, and I definitely would never have predicted that one. But we have to know, look, the center is not holding there because there's a lack at the core. There's an untruth at the core. And so it can't hold forever. We know that it's just a matter of time. But their immense amount of money, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it did seem like, man, they can just paper over anything. They, they can just buy their way out of almost any problem that they ever have. And they had. But doesn't it restore a sense of hope and optimism that, you know, by their fruits, they are being known now, yes. um, running away from their founding. And I still haven't seen Hillary Clinton or anybody giving back their Margaret Sanger Award. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they're burying it. I don't think it's in the living room or in the foyer of their home anymore. <laughs> right. That's a good point. Well, there's probably a number of awards that we might find in Hillary's backyard or something, you know, Buried. if yeah. it's ever dug yeah. up one day, yeah. but <laughs> that'll probably be among them. And your yes. book, I think this is maybe one of the most important points for listeners because your book begins with your conversion to the Trump ticket after many initial doubts and hesitancies over his character, especially his conduct toward women, which turned a lot of people off from the original Trump ticket in the beginning of his first election. Yet now you lead the president's pro-life coalition as national co-chair and agree that unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the White House. 
What is it that you learned about the president that would convince women and Christians who were on the fence about voting for him to do so? Well, I can tell you that I've never been so happy to be so wrong. (laughs) As a convert, I am all about bringing new people into the fold, but I believe, look, it's too late. We can do this on a day-to-day retail level with all the people we know through many means, but in the primary, where there are 17 pro-life Republicans running to be the candidate for the presidency, he was our last choice out of all, and a Mm -hmm. very distant last because of things that he said on the record and no reason to believe he would be any different. I authored and a lot of women colleagues sent into Iowa and to South Carolina, two key primary states that anybody but Donald Trump would be fantastic with us. Mm-hmm. So, so good question. What happened? <laughs> well, what happened was a combination of two things, political necessity and political muscle. The political necessity came about because we ended up with two candidates, one Hillary Clinton and the other Donald Trump. That's the political necessity. The muscle comes in when you um, do what we were talking about a little while ago. You hear somebody say, I believe abortion is wrong. It's the death of a person. I have to oppose it. You take them at their word and you make sure they're very clear about what their commitments are. And that's exactly what I did with him. After that, I was the head of his pro-life coalition. In print, in a letter from him to the entire pro-life movement, The number one among them we're going through right now is pro-life Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. Now we're in the third to come down the pike. And so you'd say, well, why would you believe just a letter that he signed? I mean, haven't you met politicians before? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'd met many. (laughs) Um, But we were at a place of this candidate who then had Mike Pence come on board. We had this group of commitments. We saw a campaign that was thoroughgoing in a pro-life way. And then we saw what we were 100% sure was going to happen with the Hillary Clinton presidency. And we felt we had no choice, that the stakes were too high. And so we went helping him be, I believe, the person that he said he wanted to be, and grow fully into this conversion that he had on the matter. And what I saw, getting to know him, and then also just seeing him and how he performed in public, he ran out of the gate saying some stuff early on that wasn't great. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was kind of the zeal of a convert type stuff. And then as time went on, He has taken such care, like you would a baby, to not mess it up, Mm -hmm. to, number one, do all the right things. That's the most important thing. The things that he has done have outstripped every other Republican president ever, Mm -hmm. without question. But also the way he handles it himself, the way he speaks of it, when he talks about it, when he's giving a speech, he does not haul off and say stuff that anybody else feels like they need to step back. Almost never. (laughs) And I think that is the care and concern that somebody who understands the consequences of taking that position are. And it's meant a lot. And he has lived up to every promise and way beyond. Mm -hmm. He's done everything in his power that he could do to do everything without the benefit of the Congress often to help create a pro-life country. Right. Because I see a lot of pro-lifers right now coming up on this next election getting bullied from so many different sides saying, well, pro-life only goes so far with him. You have to look at X, Y, and Z, like we said in the last question. And then with bringing it back again to the past, things that he had said, ways that he had ostracized women, minorities, 
Yet we see other candidates numerous times, and especially from the Democratic Party, that it's easily forgotten. And I can't help but thinking about our Virginia governor, who you had mentioned before Mm. with the infanticide, but also there were a number of racist elements that were uncovered about his past that were Uh a big deal, but then easily forgotten. And so we do see it does sometimes matter on the party, whether these past injustices that you've done, whether it's been racist actions, infanticide, or radical things that you've said against the unborn, against minorities, against women, some things are easily forgotten and other things are not. So I Mm -hmm. see that time and time again, as this comes up, we're hearing about so many things that he had said. So I think it's good to hear from someone like you who was not on board at first, but then had this conversion in seeing the fruits of his words on these pro-life measures and, you know, how he put his money where his mouth was. Polling in this country continues to show that most Americans have some pro-life standards, as we mentioned, and that most oppose abortion after five months when the baby can demonstrably feel pain. Support is highest among women, minorities, and millennials. Yet many remain clueless to the almost common practices by Planned Parenthood of harvesting and selling aborted baby parts, as was exposed in the series of undercover videos by the Center for Medical Progress. You pointed out that procurement technicians are promised bonuses for particular baby parts with stomachs, bladders, and lungs, resulting in a higher per-item bonus. Unable to refute or defend these videos, the abortion industry filed criminal charges initiated in California by then-Attorney General Camilla Harris, an abortion industry ally. How does your organization fight monster political organizations such as Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, and even presidential candidates while getting the message to voters that the abortion agenda is more radical than they know? Well, I think the most useful thing is pointing out what all of those people are doing with their money, how they're making profits, and what they're doing with their political lives. You know, in fighting against them, really what you do is just you make sure that they step up and show who they are. They are going to be a beacon for something. And so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we show what they are, what they want their own legacy to be. So my book was written before Kamala Harris was the vice presidential nominee. And she, as the attorney general there in California and going after David Daleiden and PMP, his organization, she, instead of enforcing the law, which is against manipulating the abortion procedure to get whole body parts out, and also that you can't sell it for profit, you can't sell the parts of babies. So instead of enforcing the law against Planned Parenthood, what she did was she went after the whistleblower Mm -hmm. because you know what? It's just popular. He's not among the cool crowd, the people that we want to protect. We're going to go after him. And uh, what I love about David Daleiden, he's like, bring it on, bring (laughs) it on. And let's let you let the world see who you are. And he has not backed down. It's been a delight of my life to be behind him and helping him in his legal defense through just the funding of it um, over time. And to be a part of that fight is a privilege of a lifetime because he is, I believe, part of what this movement has needed for a long time, which is someone who puts a camera up to the abuse and the horror itself. 
that and I believe the Gosnell movie were two key mm-hmm. moments and Abby's movie as well. But where other human rights movements have, you, you've seen the pictures, you've seen the hosing down of, of blacks in South Carolina. You saw pictures of suffragists jailed when they were just protesting for the right to vote. The lashes on the back of slaves and lynchings. We've seen all those and we recoil because the reality of what it is, it's hard to perceive that horror that the child, the little boy or the little girl is going through as it is being killed or dismembered. He brought that to the public eye and, um, and that is vital. So no matter how many times he gets attacked and hauled into a new court, we're there with him lifting up, okay, this is why you're punishing this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he'd rather go to jail than to ever settle on any of these wow. cases, and he never will. And he it almost will. seems like Harris got to step up in a way. I mean, again, easily forgiven mm-hmm. and forgotten. Right. And will you be the vice president? You know, so. <laughs> yes. It, it, do, it yeah. is discouraging. Didn't because hurt No, it does yeah. seem like this person would be too radical to be on a higher ticket, but yet that's exactly mm-hmm. where you often find some of these people. So, Well, the interesting thing is, yes, it credentialed her, and that's important, and that small number of elites that decide who gets to be the nominee, right? It's really important there, but it is certainly out of sync with the base. It's out of the sync with a handful of people who will be the deciding voters in battleground states, they definitely know this issue is not helping them right now. They're talking about everything but this issue. In the Democratic National Convention, not a word, not one word the whole time, except for in one little fleeting montage of a video. But in the Republican National Convention, it was center, center stage, communicated beautifully in speeches that it wasn't even intended to be a part of. It has become really the bold and beautiful and part of the sinews of who the Republican Party is. I just think it's a matter of time because of that disconnect between the Democratic elite and the Democratic base. It's just a matter of time where it starts to erode and they they are forced to the negotiation table on some reasonable things, just as they were just a couple of decades ago where they were before. And Obama beat it out of them. Right. We have to address September 18th, just six days ago, marked the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Your book shares one of the many pro-abortion movements by Justice Ginsburg, who voted against a Texas law in 2016 to require abortion facilities to meet the standards for ambulatory surgery centers and to require physicians to have admitting privileges to a hospital within a 30-mile radius of their operations. The Supreme Court vacancy is a nightmare to pro-abortion supporters who lost a champion in the wake of Ginsburg's passing. How is this arguably the biggest motivating factor in congressional Democrats' drive to delegitimize President Trump's election, undo his pro-life policy victories, and stop him from winning a second term? (laughs) Well, there are two incredibly important things happening right now that, you know, it's just there are moments in history where everything is happening at the same time. (laughs) 2020 is a boatload of (laughs) difficult 
and also some incredibly hopeful and wonderful opportunities. So the two big things are happening right now, and they'll happen in the next handful of days. A Supreme Court nominee will be uh, named, and they will be confirmed, I believe, before the election. That is the goal in my conversations with the president, the vice president, all the senators. Everyone's in agreement that that is the goal. And I've never seen such unity ever in my life in that crowd. Um, and then also there we will elect a new president and that new president will either be a bulwark against court stacking and increasing the number of senators so that the rules of the game are not changed mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when the Democrats see that they're completely outnumbered on the Supreme Court. So the, both of those things are happening. I believe very strongly and the president agrees that winning this nominee before the election is a huge win for him. And in his own words, he moves into election day a winner, not in the middle of a battle, but a winner. Mm -hmm. So given where the votes are needed in battleground states, especially the Rust Belt states, any of the women nominees, right now it looks like Amy Barrett, she helps clinch some of those votes in those battleground states among Democrats, independents, and Republicans that are wavering that we need in order to win enough electoral votes on election day. Or, you know, election day may end up, it's already actually started. We're, we're living in a totally new world. Voting has started in so many places, and who knows if we'll even know on that day. But right. we definitely need a Supreme Court that's full <laughs> to help right. us figure that out. And the two interesting points is, first of all, a lot of people from the Democratic Party will fight this tooth and nail, this Supreme Court nomination before the next election happens in the hopes that Trump will not be in office and they can get someone else in. But the funny thing is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, I think, was elected within 33 days when she became a justice. So that shows you how funny it is that her nominee that we're trying to fill her seat was actually filled in 33 days. And then also the other interesting aspect in our current society, unfortunately, is the fact that so many times when people are elected to office, suddenly there are a lot of accusations of sexual assault that come to the forefront, which will be interesting in light of filling her position, her seat with another woman. Because I've seen some funny satires, but also very sad that we're in this climate politically saying, Mm -hmm. I was raped by whoever President Trump decides to nominate to the Supreme Court. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. laugh, but it is sadly the culture that we're in. Either there are a lot of high power officials in politics who are sexually assaulting women, or there are a lot of people using and convincing women to make these allegations as a political move or a little bit Mm -hmm. of both, which are all Mm -hmm. disturbing. But it will be interesting to see how that plays out in nominating a woman. Yeah, well, there's a lot of black and white and gray and all of that. Because it's so difficult to sort out, it's tantalizing for the other side to make sure that they insert that in the middle. Yes, so now very interesting, we have potentially a judge who has a big Catholic family, among them a child with Down syndrome and two Haitian adoptees. Is this a monster? Is this someone who feeds on the vulnerabilities of other people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, in fact, she so clearly (laughs) has a heart for the vulnerable. um, And that is what her faith has done for her, in addition to being somebody of great natural character. So they're going to have to find some stuff. I'm already seeing in these days that the gloves are getting put a little bit back on about going after her religion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the wild-eyed activists outside the court, they'll keep up with that, I have no doubt. But in the hearings, 
I think it's going to be about pre-existing conditions, taking away people's health care, court cases that are coming up. And I'm sure that Roe will come up without question. But I believe we have the votes to get her out of committee. And I believe we have the votes on the floor. But I also thought that before Kavanaugh went into his hearing, Mm -hmm. and I literally sat there and watched this horrific assassination upon him and was surrounded by the people who were in charge of it. I don't underestimate them for a minute. I don't underestimate them coming up with a complete lie. Right. In fact, I used to not ever believe that because I I generally believe the best of people or I try. But on (laughs) on this, the ends will justify the means. We, We see it all the time in how they're operating. And, you know, often faith isn't the thing stopping them. So you'd think that good character would, but I think they think maybe they're saving people from Mm -hmm. her. So it's better to have a noble lie to put out there. So I don't know what it's going to be, but she and her family need a lot of prayers. We all need to be helping each other out here, going arm in arm. And I think especially women building a protective wall around her will be incredibly important in the next several weeks. And that's where it's so disturbing as The feminist community time and time again disappoints when strong women Mm -hmm. try to get elected. Again, if they're not in the right party, if they're not on the right side, these women are willing to either take part in trampling them or at least turn a blind eye to the smear campaign. And again, hearkening back to the suffragettes, there were many that did not agree morally on free love or certain standards that other women maybe were choosing to live by. But there was this unity for several key issues like pro-life and, you Uh know, women advancing, getting the vote, being in greater social positions. Unfortunately, Uh that feminist unity is no longer alive and well in politics. We don't see that anymore. And so again, as you were talking about the hope of returning to that again, it is very hopeful with seeing the number of millennials that are polling pro-life and having these return to those suffragette notions of the past. It really is really encouraging and inspiring. It's one of the reasons why I really believe very strongly, I don't know when, but as life is winning, and I really believe it is, I know it's a zigzag, but it is among many issues, especially culturally oriented. It is one that is winning, embraced, proud of, advancing in the court, and I believe in the laws in the near future. So I think this issue, frankly, as it did in my own life, conversion of a nation on that, I believe, can lead to conversion on all sorts of good things. You know, embracing a more virtuous society in general. Now, I don't want to overestimate it, and it sounds really Pollyannish. However, I do think it is person by person. And when you start to see the truth in one place, one place that's super important and foundational, you start to see the truth in other places too. It definitely happened to me. Your heart just kind of starts to open up, and other things sneak inside before you even know it. Right. And then lastly, have you seen pro life politicians becoming more courageous? due to the president's pro-life leadership and example, and what is the number one thing pro-life supporters can do to support the movement at this time? The answer is a resounding yes. I really believe this pride of that position and being vocal about it and not afraid, not hiding it in the closet, 
started in 2014 when we elected a strongly pro-life Senate. And we put life at the center of those elections, and the candidates did as well. They saw and they witnessed how incredibly helpful and strong it was to take the right stand. The president learned from that, also knew it in a gut level to do the same. Be proud and loud and communicate and uh, make sure that you contrast yourself with the other. I think that what the most important thing that can be done is thanking those people, even for the smallest thing, who are communicating vocally on the national level and also helping them in their reelection. And there's no question that in the next 40 days, there are so many electoral needs for pro-life candidates running now that any way you can help them, but also thanking them. Pick up the phone and say, I just want to thank you, especially in creative ways, thanking them. I know it sounds kind of silly, but it doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. And then also calling out the people who are undermining the right to life, especially if they're hiding it, calling them out and asking them why they're not, especially in federal elections right now. In a few states, there are some governors like North Carolina, but really the federal elections right now are where basically either take this country into a post-Roe pro-life America or not very soon. Right. Well, I will definitely be linking to both your book, Life is Winning, and also to how people can donate to your organization, the Susan B. Anthony List. And I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on The Dignity of Women, Marjorie Dannenfelser. Please read her book, Life is Winning, before this pivotal upcoming election. Thank you for being with us. So much fun. Thank you. I always love being with you. In concluding this interview, I want to read one page from Marjorie's book, Life is Winning, that is so telling and needs to be heard. The Democrats at their convention completed their conversion to an exclusively pro-abortion party at the national level. Governor Robert Casey, who had been elected in 1990 in the critical state of Pennsylvania by a margin of one million votes, was denied the opportunity to speak on the basis of his pro-life views. He published a manifesto in the New York Times signed by dozens of Democrats that concluded with these words. The rhetoric of abortion advocacy contains a truth that abortion advocates often fail to perceive. Abortion is a question of choice. The choice, though, is not one faced by isolated women exercising private rights. It is a choice faced by all the citizens of this free society. And the choice we make deliberately and democratically will do much to answer two questions. What kind of people are we? What kind of people will we be? If we abandon the principle of respect for human life by making the value of a life depend on whether someone else thinks that life is worthy or wanted, we will become one sort of people. But there is a better way. We can choose to reaffirm our respect for human life. We can choose to extend once again the mantle of protection to all members of the human family, including the unborn. We can choose to provide effective care of mothers and children. And if we make those choices, America will experience a new birth of freedom, bringing within it a renewed spirit of community, compassion, and caring. No power.